Right. Music hat off, preaching hat on. Uh, I'm not Pastor Larry. Uh, I am a taller and hairier version of him, but uh, um, I'm kidding. <laughs> you can't tell him that, actually. He knows. He's, list- he's probably listening to this online right now. I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. All right. Pastor Larry's been leading us through uh, the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, if you have a Bible with you uh, or uh, on your device, uh, please go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Our subject text for this morning is going to be verses uh, 1 through 7 and then a little bit into verse 8 as we start here. Uh, bottom line is uh, Pastor Larry has been talking about 1 Timothy as a blueprint for Paul to the church through Pastor Timothy. Timothy being a New Testament pastor and Paul being a senior pastor that was helping him walk his church through some basic instructions in churchship, if you will. Right? These are instructions to the people in the church on how they are to conduct themselves. Paul is very specific in his instructions, as we saw last time. And what you're going to find again this week and then in subsequent weeks, this chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 3, starts a three-part series that Paul provides instruction in three very specific things. Today we're going to talk about instruction in prayer. How do we pray? Right? Next he's going to talk about, next week we're going to cover covenant relationships in the family and in the church. And then the third thing we're going to talk about is how do we select church leaders? Right? So very specific things. Uh, not a general discussion. And so as we dig into this text this morning, keep that in mind as we go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll start reading with verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And in the first half of verse 8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, as we come to you in prayer this morning, open up this word. Father, open up our hearts. Will you give us a passion for prayer? Father, give us a passion for developing and building that relationship with you. Father, you desire that all men are saved. You desire that we as your people come to you in prayer. So, Father, empower us in that. Strengthen us in that as we hear this message this morning. We ask in Christ's name. All right, for those of you that have uh, never uh, been in a context like this with me, I like interaction. So when I ask you a question, it's church, but you can answer. It's good. Uh, don't be afraid to uh, shout out the answer if you've got one. Uh, if you're not comfortable with that, that's fine. I'll make an answer up for you. It's good. You'll love it. Uh, but it works good. As we get into the topic of prayer, right, this is very specific. Anybody wrestle with their prayer life? Anybody struggle with it? I don't pray as much as I should. I don't know how to pray. Like, what is praying? Like, it just seems weird to me. Like, it's like you're talking to yourself, right? You may have had thoughts like that in your Christian walk at some point. You're like, I don't get this prayer thing. What is it, right? Paul provides some real specific and very simple to follow instructions here, which is awesome. Because if you're wondering, like, what is prayer? How do I pray? Maybe how do I pray better if you've been walking with the Lord for a while? There's some very useful stuff, and I want to unfold that as we get into the text this morning. One of the things I want to talk about is the English language. Right? The English language uh, is not very expressive. If you speak a different language, uh, you'll know that the English language, we have a lot of different words, and the subtleties and the nuances between words are sometimes very difficult to distinguish. 
Whereas other languages in Greek, the language of the New Testament being one of those languages, the languages are very rich, right? When you use specific words, there's a lot of meaning behind each of those words. So as we go through here in verse 1, I want to look at these four words. I want to look at supplications. Your version may say petitions or entreaties. Uh, I want to look at prayers. I want to look at intercessions and thanksgiving, right? Because when we pray, what's the difference between a prayer and an intercession? I don't know. Well, that's why we're here. It's what we're here to talk about, right? So these words have very specific meanings, and Paul has a specific meaning for them when he uses them. If your version says petitions is the first word or supplications uh, or entreaties, when we're talking about that, if you go to the original Greek word, the Greek word here is very specific. It means the expressed, personally felt needs of your own heart, right? So when you pray to God, the instruction here is very clear. Pray your heart, right? What is your heart, right? And it doesn't instruct that your heart has to be right, right? It just has to be you pray what's on your heart, right? If you have something evil on your heart, you think God doesn't know that already? He knows, trust me. You're not hiding anything from him, right? But when you pray, take what is on your heart and deliver it to God. Why? What's the purpose of this? It builds relationship, right? When you are in a family, if you share what's on your heart with somebody in your family, you build what? You build a connection, right? A bond. It builds intimacy. It builds closeness. And this is what God desires out of bringing these desires from our heart. Does he know? He knows, right? But what God wants us to do as we pray to him is bring what's on our heart and deliver it up. Just offer it up to him, right? It's that simple, right? It's a simple conversation, right? So what's the difference between that and a prayer, the second word that we see here? And I think most translations use the word prayer. This is actually very interesting if you go and look in the original Greek and look at this word that's used for prayer here, because basically what it is is literally, what are we doing? We're exchanging wishes. Like if you translate the Greek word, it means exchange wishes. God, I wish for this, right? So is it good to go, God, I wish for a pony? Is that bad? Well, there's a very specific meaning here, and we're going to take a look at this in just a second. But what we're talking about is an exchange of wishes where we wish or desire that our wishes match up with God's will for us, right? And so as we pray, and if you'll, if you'll notice it, Jesus talked about this in the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, pray in this way, thy will be done, right? We are praying that our wishes align with God's will, because when they do, then we are executing what God intends for us to execute as a servant in his kingdom, right? So we want our wishes to align with God's will. The third word that you see here, intercessions, is probably what your translation says, captures that, right? If you translate this word literally, it means hit the mark, hit the target, right? God, I pray that I would hit the target of your will, right? The contrary being missing the mark, right? I am missing the mark of God's will. I am sinning, right? So this also aligns with the way that Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And when we pray, we are to pray that all of that comes together. Finally, we're to pray with thanksgiving, right? And this is not just a general thanksgiving. In the context that it's used in this verse, this is a very specific thanksgiving. We are to be thankful for God's grace, right? We are to be thankful for the grace of salvation, this isn't, God, I'm thankful for my house and this food and this car. This is very specific. God, I am thankful for your grace to me through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for my salvation. Right? And when you take all of these things as a whole, you come up with a pretty good roadmap for what prayer should look like. Complicated? It's really not. Right? How is it not? What are we to do? 
simply have a conversation with God. If you think about the way that you would talk with God, what do we do? We're bringing all of this stuff to him. The idea being as we get to the bottom of these four things, that now what we bring to God, we want to have that merge into or align with God's will in our life. Right? And that needs to be the focal point of our prayer. Because when we do that, like we talked about before, we're working out God's plan for us in our life. So four very specific things. But as we take a look at this, turn in your Bibles if you've got one to Philippians chapter 4. I want to look at this real quick. Chapter 4, verse 6 in Philippians, it's very interesting when you look at this. A lot of this very same language is used in this very same verse, right? So I'm going to start reading uh, in verse 5. Actually, I'll read in verse 6. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, the exact same words in the Greek. And so the idea is what? If we come this way, what's the result here? It assuages anxiety. Anybody worry in here? Anybody have anxiety? You ever struggled with that? I know some people struggle with that on a regular basis, right? I, I'm anxious about everything. What, what does that person think of me? What am I going to wear? What am I going to drive? What am I going to eat tomorrow, Right? Be anxious for nothing is what we're instructed in other parts of the Bible, and we're instructed here as well. How do we ease anxiety? Take it to God in prayer. It's a really simple formula, right? Are you worried about something? Offer it up to him. Turn it over to him that it would align with his will, and that's what these verses are saying here in Philippians. So let's turn back to Timothy chapter 2 real quick uh, as we do this. Paul is not limiting us here. Anybody heard of acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication? The four keys to an effective prayer life, you ever heard that? That's not what Paul is doing here. Right? He is not doing this. He is using these four examples to talk about the entirety of your prayer life. Right? These four things capture the totality of what we should be doing when we pray. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Right? What are my heartfelt needs? What's going on inside me? What are my wishes? What's outside of me? And then aligning all of that under God's will with thanksgiving for his grace in Christ, right? And if you look at that, that is a huge, it is an all-encompassing operation, right? And so when he uses this, it's not like I got a four-thing checkmark, and when I pray for all four of these things, that's a good prayer. This is the idea of a constant communion and a fellowship with God, right? What's the perfect example if we look at it in the Bible? How did Jesus walk with God, right? When he was on earth in the form of a man, how did he walk with God? How many times in the New Testament do you read about Jesus sneaking off somewhere to go pray to the Father, right? How many times do you read that Jesus ditched the crowd and he got in a boat and he sailed across the lake and he went to the other side so that he could be alone so that he could simply spend some time talking to his dad, right? It was a very intimate relationship. It was a priority for him. Even on the night that he was betrayed, he spent hours on the mountain in prayer, right? He spent hours in prayer. He wanted his disciples to pray with him. That is the idea. When we have that level of a relationship with God, now we are living in God's will when it comes to our prayer life. You go, wow, that's a tall order to fill. Yep, yeah, it is. I, I won't disagree with you. But if you're looking like, what does this look like when it's effective? It's almost so natural you don't even think about it, right? I'm getting ready to walk out the door and start my car. God, will you please give me a safe trip to Albertsons or wherever I'm going, right? Like, it sounds trite in some ways, but it's not. Because everything that we do is now captured in prayer and conversation with God. Right? 
The Garden of Eden is another great example. Adam and Eve walk with God in the cool of the evening. What do you think they did? What do you do when you walk around in the cool of the evening? Look around, but I talk, right? When I'm with a group of people, we usually talk. We have fellowship. We have communion. We have a, a building of a relationship, right? And that idea at creation when the world was perfect is the idea that we're trying to capture in our prayer life uh, as we walk through and take a look at that. The bottom line is when Jesus prayed, it was constant, right? He was earnest in his prayer, right? And he was vibrant. He was on fire for praying to the Father, right? Nothing could stop him, not even his disciples, not even a crowd of 5,000 people. Nothing could stop him from going to the Father in prayer. That's what our prayer should look like when we take a look at how we should pray. Okay, cool. For whom should we pray, right? Now we get into for whom, right? Paul starts out here and he says, all, right? Pray for all men, okay? What does that mean when you think of that? Probably comes the idea like we're just going to have this general prayer. God, I pray for everybody in the world, right? What does that mean? That's not what we're talking about here, right? This is also a very specific prayer. We are specifically to pray for the salvation of all men. We are specifically to pray for their salvation. We're told a little bit further down in this chapter, God desires that all men be saved, right? So we are to pray for the salvation of all men. And stop and reflect on your prayer life. Do you do that? Do you pray that God would save all men? Probably that one kid that beat you up in grade school and stole your lunchbox, took your lunch money. Like, God, I pray you save everybody but that kid. He really deserves it, right? You know that kid. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody has one. We pray for all men. We lift them up and pray that they would be saved because that's God's will. And that's a huge deal when you take a look at it. But I want to be very careful here because there is a theological deviancy uh, is probably the best way to say it that goes on in some of the, the, the liberal branches of the modern Christian church uh, called universalism. It says that all men are saved. Right? Anybody heard that? All men are saved, right? Yeah. Is it true? Is it true? What does the Bible say? Absolutely not, right? When we look in the Bible, turn to Romans chapter 9, if you've got a Bible with you. Let's take a look at this real quick. I want to look at what the Bible says to make sure that we understand that we're not talking about universalism here. We're not talking about the salvation of all men. In Romans chapter 9, verse 22, we read this. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So here, Paul talks very specifically and says what? There are vessels of wrath that are going to be destroyed, right? There are people that are not going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we read here that we pray for the salvation of all men, that doesn't mean that all men are going to be saved. And I need to be very careful about that because that is not what Scripture teaches. And so there is a way of salvation that is afforded to all men through Jesus Christ. And that's what we're really talking about here, right? Not all men are saved, but the gospel is offered to everybody except people that live in Dallas, right? Absolutely not, right? The gospel is offered to all men, right? The gospel is offered to everyone, right? God is not standing there with his hand out going, no, it's not offered to you. It's not for you right? Not since the gospel was open to the Gentiles in the book of Acts in the New Testament, right? The gospel is offered freely to everyone. The question is, what do you do with it when you hear the gospel message? Do you believe that Jesus Christ was God's son and that he came to save you from your sins, right? The answer to that question 
is really what determines the outcome of the whole situation. Right? It comes down to that simple question right there, although it's really not that simple, I understand that. So when we're talking about this here, all men does not mean everybody gets saved. All right. How about kings? We don't have a king, right? We have a president. Right? Is he close enough? Yeah, Bible says we pray for everyone in authority, right? The president, Congress, senators, uh, judges, uh, the mayor, uh, our pastor, our dad. Like, people in authority, right? Everyone in authority. Authority in the government, authority in the church, authority in the family, right? Those are the three major structures that you see time and time again as structures in the Bible, right? And so my challenge to you this morning is this. How do you do that? Right? How do you pray for everyone in authority? Right? How many of you lift up the president in prayer? I'm not asking for a show of hands, right? Because this can get very divisive. We'll talk about that in just a minute, right? How many of you pray for this president? Just think to yourself, right? Did you pray as much for this president as you prayed for the last president? How about the one before him, right? How do you lift up those in authority in prayer? Right? Very important question. A very important question because when we do it, the bottom line is we have to do it the way that God directs. And he's very specific here. Right? When we talk here, Paul is talking about a bilateral relationship. We're going to go to the book of Romans chapter 13. So if you have a Bible, you can start turning there. We're going to go there in just a second and take a look at that. But we're taking a look at the relationship between us and the state, the government, and God. Right? And there's a relationship that's very clearly defined in the Bible as we talk about that. And prayer is a key part of that relationship. You may not have thought about that before. Prayer being a key part of your relationship between you and the government. You probably have not heard that before, uh, but it is indeed true. So let's turn to Romans chapter 13. I'm going to start reading with verse 1 here, and we're going to dig into this idea just a little bit more. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority... Resist the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So in Romans, we see this idea fleshed out a little bit more. Right? There is a bilateral relationship between us and the state, and it's actually trilateral if you look at it, because God is over both of these relationships, right? So the first thing when we look at a bilateral or a two-sided relationship, let's take a look at us, right? And you've probably, if you've heard Romans 13 preached on before, you've probably heard this message before. In this relationship between us and the state, the government, the authority, what are we supposed to do, right? What are we instructed to do? And we have it laid out for us right here, right? Our responsibility, number one, in verse 2, is to pray, right? As a citizen in our country, our responsibility is to pray, to lift up those in authority, right? God wants us to pray for them. 
Do you do that? Do you do that regularly? Because the instruction is here. Pray. Pray for them and not just pray for them. God, I pray that you would help this judge to get me off the hook because I was speeding too fast. No, that's not what we're talking about. Pray for godliness. We are to pray that our will aligns with God. We are to pray that our government's will aligns with God. We are to pray that the decisions that are made in the halls of government at every level in this land align with God's will. Whew, I would love to see that. I don't know about you, but why not? Have we been faithful to pray? Have we been faithful to pray? We need to be. Right? We need to pray. Right? We need to pray specifically, and we need to pray frequently because, trust me, they need it. This isn't a political party thing, right? I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party. Party affiliation has absolutely nothing to do with this. Right? We talked about it before. I hope you're praying as much for this president as you did for the last president, or vice versa. I hope you prayed as much for the last president as you're praying for this president, right? It doesn't have anything to do with political party. I don't care what your political affiliation is. People in authority is who we're to pray for at all levels. Right? We pray for them. We pray, pray, pray that their will and that their actions would align with God's will. It's very simple. Right? It has nothing to do with party. All right. Our responsibility is also to obey. We're instructed in Romans to be subject to the governing authority. Right? And you've probably heard this message before, right? We're subject. Right? What does that mean? What if you don't like driving 45 miles an hour going down the mountain to town? I don't care. Right? You're instructed to obey. Is it unbiblical to drive 45 miles an hour? Well, then you're to obey. It's very simple, right? The only time we're afforded the option to be disobedient is when our government instructs us to violate this word right here, right? And then we have a responsibility to do so. But the bottom line is, until that point, I don't care if you like it or not, the bottom line is we are to obey. Even the speed limit, yes. Ooh, getting a little close to home. All right. Do what is good. Do what is good. In Romans, we're instructed, do what is good so you don't have to be what? You don't have to be scared of the government. If you drive 45, do you have to worry about getting a ticket? Nope. It's pretty simple, right? Do what is good. Why? Because when you do what is good, what happens? Those around you see what is good, right? They're encouraged to good works, right? The government looks at you, Romans says, and commends you, right? Good job. You're doing great works, right? And as this perpetrates, right, as this propagates, now... Think about that. I mean, just stop and think and envision for a minute. If everybody in America lived the way that a Christian should live, police department would be out of a job pretty quick, right? Don't need them, right? If you're not out murdering, killing, stealing, then this isn't a problem. And so when we collectively do what is good, that's that. Can I make everybody do good? No, right? That's the government's job, right? We'll talk about that in a different sermon sometime. But the bottom line is I can do my part. Do what is good and be deliberate about it when you do it. Third thing... Paul say in Romans, pay your taxes. What? what? Pay my taxes? I'm not giving my money to the government. You know what they do with my money? They waste it. Paul doesn't talk about that, does he? <laughs> Paul doesn't talk about that, does he? Right? That's also a different discussion. We'll talk about that in a different sermon. But the bottom line is, why do we pay our taxes? I can't think of a way to be more submissive to a person than to take the fruits of my hard labor in the form of money and give it to them. Here you go. Here you go. What's mine is now yours. Do with it what God instructs you to. Right? And that's the way that that ought to happen. Right? So if the government is wasting your taxes, if you do not think they are using your taxes appropriately, what can you do? 
write them, call them, engage with them, right? This now sets the model for how as Christians we are to interact with our government in our society, right? This is what Christianity looks like when it's worked out, right? In our obedience, in our submission, in paying our taxes, there's nothing in the Bible that prohibits us from getting on the phone with our congressman and going, we spent money on this this year, and that is wrong, right? And I'm going to take five minutes to let you know. I'm going to write a letter. I am going to engage. And every single one of us here has a responsibility, not only as a citizen, but more importantly as a Christian, to do that. Because that government is responsible to whom? To me? Mm -mm. They answer to God, right? And so we have a duty to help them do their job. Bet you never thought about that before. But it's true. All right, we know what we're supposed to do. What's the government supposed to do, right? This is where we get into the weird part of this, because I don't hear this preached on very often. Did you know that the government has responsibilities? In America, I think a lot of times we think the government answers to us. You know the government answers to? The answer to God, right? And that's a very sobering thought if you think about it. If that doesn't encourage you to pray for your government, I don't know what does, because they answer directly to God for the way that they execute. What are they supposed to do? The government's supposed to preserve things. The first thing they're supposed to preserve is peace and tranquility. Right? When we take a look at it here in Timothy and also in Romans, the government's responsibility is to preserve peace. Right? This is both outward and inward peace, and that's kind of a weird thing when you think about the government preserving inward peace. Right? But if your government at any level is enacting policies or doing things that do not preserve peace, it's time to get engaged. Right? It is time to get engaged. It's time to bring the gospel. It's time to bring the word and engage and go, here's what you ought to be doing, right? Write a letter. Send a fax, if anybody even knows what that still is. Make a phone call, right? Like, the bottom line is government should be preserving peace, and if they're not, it's up to us to engage and to admonish when they do that. One of the other things the government is supposed to encourage is godliness. What? The government is supposed to encourage godliness? How's our government doing? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Come on. Come on. What do they do? It's illegal to murder someone here in New Mexico. I don't know if you knew that or not. Is that godly? Yeah, it's very godly, right? It's very simple, right? But it's also godliness, right? So let's talk about this in the context of legislation, our laws. Do our laws drive us to godly conduct, right? How many times do you think somebody in Congress, when they vote on a bill, is thinking about that when they push the yes or no button? We have to engage. We have to encourage them in that respect, right? This law is coming up. Here is what the Bible says about it. Here's how I am requesting that as my representative and God's agent for good, I am requesting you to vote. How many of you know bills that are coming up that affect you right now? What's on the docket? There's one. Anybody else? You know this is all available on the interwebs, right? There's a website for Congress. It's got lists of all this legislation they're considering. Are you looking at it? Are you considering? Where is your tax dollars going? What are they spending this stuff on? It's up to us to get engaged, right? It's time for the church to be active as a collective because when we're active as a group, we shape, right? One person makes a phone call, yeah, you can hang up on that, right? A thousand people make a phone call, now you've got somebody's attention. I worked for a while on, on Capitol Hill. That's exactly how it works, right? Voices make noise. The more voices, the more noise. People pay attention, right? It's up to us to engage. Lastly, the government is to preserve dignity, right? What kind of dignity? We talk about this, we're talking about the dignity of the individual, right? That's very important. Why? Because people have an inherent dignity. 
Well, yes and no, right? The thing I want to be very careful of is in the modern context, you hear this sometimes in the context of things like social justice, justice, right? Everybody has dignity. And there can be a very humanistic form of that, right? Where you have dignity simply because you are, right? Why do we have dignity as people? Because we are created in the image of God, every single one of us, right? And so God and the person and character of God that we inherit through being created in his image gives us an inherent dignity. Right? So if the government is passing policies, laws, legislation that do not respect dignity and life, then what are we to do? We're to get engaged. Right? Get engaged. Plenty of opportunities for that in America today, right? particularly in the defense of life. Right? We are to get engaged. Right? Very simple. Very clear. All right. The state has a responsibility to represent the ordinances of God. Right? We talked about that a little bit in the murder example. As the state proceeds, it has to represent the ordinances of God because the government is God's minister to you for good. Anybody feel like that? Feel like your government's ministering to you for good on behalf of God? (laughs) Probably not, right? I don't know. Maybe you do. But the bottom line is, is if you think there's deficiencies there, what do we do? We get engaged. And then finally, I want to talk about wrath. The government has a just responsibility to enact wrath on those who do evil, right? And not evil the way that you and I might define it, but evil the way that God defines it, right? If there is evil going on, the government has a responsibility to bring God's wrath against that, right? There's a responsibility. Leniency? No. Is God lenient against sin? God is gracious to those that are in Christ. But when it comes to sin, sin is an offense to God. And if you look at the government, they are to be God's representative of wrath against people that don't get the message. Very clear. Very simple. All right. Wow. Why? Why do we have this bilateral, this two-sided relationship between us and the government? The ultimate goal is to preserve the gospel and to put forth the gospel. You stop and think about a country where all of the people lived as Christians ought to live. Well, you wouldn't need the gospel in that country, right? Well, you never know, right? But the bottom line is, when there is peace, when there is tranquility, when there is dignity, the gospel can go forth, right? Take a look at countries like China. Take a look at countries like North Korea, right? How easy is it to get the gospel message out in these countries? It's not. It's very difficult, right? Those governments are failing in their responsibility to God, right? And when that gospel message goes forth, it's self-perpetuating, right? The gospel goes forth, it brings more peace, right? When, when, when the shepherds saw the angels and they brought the message, peace on earth, right? goodwill towards all men, this is the gospel message. The gospel brings peace. Right? And without the gospel, there is no peace. Right? So you go pray for peace. Well, pray for peace. If you want to pray for peace, pray for people to have their hearts changed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. That's for whom we should pray. What should we pray for? This is going to sound a little bit repetitive. Right, as we get through this. The first thing we need to pray for is a knowledge of the truth. Right? The truth is a very elusive thing in modern society. Right? I've got a whole different sermon on this I hope to preach here in the next couple of months. But the bottom line is, what is truth? Right? That's a very deep question. Right? Philosophers have philosophized over that for thousands of years. The knowledge of the truth. We're not talking about your truth or my truth or, or, or uh, no fake news or alternative facts. We're talking about Truth, truth, biblical truth, right? So what we need to pray for is that people would have a knowledge of this truth right here, 
a knowledge of the Word of God. Right? And as you do that, what's going to happen? As you come to know truth of the Bible, you're going to come to know the true God. Right? So we pray for the knowledge of the true God. We've got a lot of gods running around society, right? We've got Buddha, we've got Allah, we've got... Uh, I don't know, we even got, we got a flying spaghetti monster floating around somewhere, right? I mean, we, we got all kinds of gods floating around in society, whether they're serious or not, right? But the bottom line is, when you're talking about knowledge of the true God, we're talking about the God of the Bible. Not some God I made up that universally loves everybody and wants to be your buddy. We're talking about the God of the Bible. We need to pray for the knowledge of that God. We also need to pray for a knowledge of the mediator, right? When you go back to Timothy chapter 2 here, we need to pray that people know the mediator, right? You can walk up and down Borough Street and be like, hey, do you believe in God? Yeah, dude, I believe in God. I'm good, right? Tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Who? Right? Just believing in a God is not sufficient, right? There is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is what the Bible tells us, right? And so the knowledge of that mediator is critical to our salvation. It's absolutely essential as we pray for that, right? As you talk about the mediator, here in Timothy, you can't help but talk about the sacrifice, right? He sacrificed himself. He freely gave himself this mediator. What's that all about? What is that all about? Why did he sacrifice himself? Why did that have to happen? When you add all of these things up, it equals what? Discussion about the gospel, right? So what we're talking about here is a prayer for the gospel and a continued prayer for the gospel to go forward. It all ties together, and Paul does a full job of it uh, as he walks us through what's going on here. Right? So this equals the gospel. Verses 5 and 6 I want to look at. Let's go look at that again real quick in verse 5. There is one God. Right? So here we see polytheism right out. There is one God. Right? One mediator between God and men. Right? Who is that mediator? The man, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified to in due time. In those simple few words right there, we see what? That's the whole gospel message. Right? So as we go take the gospel out into the world, we don't need to have this elaborate, ornate explanation. Paul doesn't. And now, granted, Paul was a pretty amazing theologian. But the bottom line is he does it here in just a few simple words. Right? The gospel is not complicated. Right? So as we pray for it to go forth, and we'll talk about it in a little bit as we take it forward, it's a very simple message. You can find it right here in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Right? It's very easy. Paul. Let's talk about Paul for a minute. Paul was appointed as a witness, is what he says here. Witness to what? He's a witness to this gospel. If you take a look at the life of Paul, his selection as God's witness was very carefully done. God is a genius if you look at the selection of Paul. Why? Paul was a Jew. He was a Jew. He was the Jew's Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He's got a credibility list that no Jew can match, right? Paul was the Jew's Jew. Paul was also a Roman citizen, right? He was the Gentile's Gentile. And so when you take a look at testifying to the truth of the gospel, God carefully selected Paul because Paul's street cred, if you want to use the modern parlance, was good on both sides of the aisle. He could talk to Jews all day long. He could take the Old Testament, the Torah. He could go, here's how this points to Christ being the Messiah. Right? He could go into the Roman philosophical circles. You know, The sermon at Mars Hill is a classic case. And basically go, let me explain to you in language that you understand how Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of God. 
Right? Paul was the perfect candidate to do this, and he does this throughout the entirety of his writing in the New Testament, if you look at it, and it does very simple. But the thing that you look about Paul when you look at his writing is he always goes back to what? The gospel. Right? It's always about the gospel. Right? Paul could hold his own in the most complex theological debate on the planet, but does he? Seldom do you see that. Right? What Paul does is keep going back to the simplicity and the basics of the gospel, and it's a good lesson for us as we do this. All right. When we talk about the gospel going forward with Paul, Paul reinforces here, and he reinforces in other places, that the gospel is for all men, right? Paul wouldn't have been used, right? If you wanted somebody to go minister to the Jews, get Peter, right? Peter was a Jew's Jew, right? Just take the gospel to the Jews and you're good. But if you remember back to the book of Acts in chapter 10, Peter went to Cornelius' house and he had a vision while he was sleeping there, right? There's a vision of a sheet that comes down out of heaven and it's full of all these animals, right? What happens there? God says, go eat. Peter goes, God, I can't eat. What's, there's unclean stuff in that sheet. I can't go over there and eat. And God says, what? He says, oh, you're right, Peter. I'm sorry about that. I made a mistake. No, that's not what he says. He says, Peter, how dare you call unclean what I have called clean, right? And as Peter talks to Cornelius later on, Cornelius actually opens his eyes and says, praise be to God. The gospel has come to the Gentiles. The gospel has come to the Gentiles, which is amazing, right? Now the gospel goes freely to all men. The offer is there. The question is, what do they do with it, right? The question is, what do they do with it? What do we do with this? What do we do with this text? First thing we need to do is what? Very simple. We pray. We pray. We've talked about what we pray for. But more importantly than anything, what is important we pray for is the spread of the gospel. Because the gospel brings peace. And when there's peace, the gospel spreads even more. It has this cumulative effect. And that's how, when you turn on the news and you see crisis, chaos, emergency, whatever is going on, that all fades into the background in the light of the gospel. Right? Imagine if you turn on your TV and the news was 3,000 people were saved today in Antioch. Huh, praise God, right? How awesome would that be, right? What if that was the news, right? How does that happen? The gospel goes forward. How does that happen? We pray, and we'll talk about that in a little bit more here. Pray for your kings. Pray for your authorities. Right? We talked about it. It's not just the government. It's here in the church. You lift up Pastor Larry on a regular basis. You lift up our deacons as they minister in the church, right? Do you lift up the nursery staff? Do you lift up Sunday school workers? Right? Do you lift these people up in prayer? Do you lift up people in your family that are in authority? Do you lift up your boss at work? Probably not. Right? Uh, but he needs it. He needs it just as much as the next guy. Right? When you lift them up, I encourage you, lift them up by name. Right? It's one thing to go, Lord, help the president. I hate that guy. I didn't vote for him, but help him out. Right? It's another thing to go, Lord, help President Trump make decisions that are in your will. Help him to spend time in your word. Help him to pray and build a relationship with you that your gospel might go forward in this country. Much different prayer, right? Pray by name. Make a list. It's easy. Make a list. You may not even know who your congressmen, your senators are. If you don't, this is a great time to get engaged, right? Find out. Again, there's this thing called the Internet. You can go find this stuff. Make a prayer list and pray by name, right? Get to know these people. That allows you to now build that relationship where you can engage with them. Emails, phone calls, faxes, send them a page, whatever that is. Bottom line is you can cover all of this, but do it by name. Make it personal, right? Make it personal to you the way that you personally pray for them. Last thing we need to do is pray that God's will is done, right? 
When we pray that God's will is done, that encourages us to align what we do with God's will. That's why Jesus put it in the Lord's Prayer. We said that before, and I'll emphasize it again. What else can we do with this? Encourage, and at times we might even need to admonish those in authority, right? Encouragement is key, right? Nobody likes to get yelled at. Anybody like to get yelled at here? You ought to tie your shoes, young man. No, nobody likes that, right? We encourage first, but if encouragement's not working, what did Jesus do? He admonished, right? Sometimes he flat out rebuked, and he was very in people's faces, not in anger, not in anger, but with a sternness and one of an authority that only comes from being the Son of God, and we can engage with the same authority if we engage with the Word of God, right? We don't engage on our own authority. Dear Congressman so-and-so, you ought to do this because I say so. Whatever, right? You ought to do this because God commands it, right? And whether he listens to that or not, you are fulfilling your responsibility as a Christian citizen, and so that's what you ought to do. You have to stay engaged. You can't be passive in this process. Very easy just to sit back and do nothing, right? Very easy to sit back and do nothing. I'm checking out of the political scene. It's annoying. There's stupid people all over the place, right? I've heard all the excuses. I hear it all the time. I'm not. I'm getting engaged, and I'm staying engaged because it's part of my responsibilities as a member of the church, as a member of the Christian community, and as a citizen in this country. Stay engaged. Please stay engaged. Lastly, what do we do with this? Testify, right? You can pray that the gospel goes forward, right? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 28? Go. The implication is you go and make disciples of all nations. You go, right? Because when this gospel goes forward, peace goes forward, right? Peace goes forward, the nation is blessed, right? Micah, right? My people humbly pray, seek my face, and turn away from their wicked ways, then what? I will heal their land, right? The key to peace in America is what? Prayer. It's simply prayer. It's where it starts, right? There's other things we can do. We talked about that. But let it start in your life with prayer as you pray. Right? Lift these things up to God. Get engaged. Don't sit back on the sidelines because that's not what we're called to do as Christians. We're instructed to be salt and light. What does salt do? It gets in, right? You ever get salt in a wound? Oh, it gets in there, doesn't it? Hard to get out. That's the picture of us engaging on behalf of Jesus Christ and wherever God's put us, right? In our place of work, in our homes, in our government, right? Local, state, national. I don't know where God's going to take you and how he's going to use you, but I do know that he is going to use you, right? So open yourself up to those opportunities, and it starts with prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you make yourself a God who hears prayer. Father, you open yourself to us. You reveal yourself to us. And yet, Father, importantly to us, you listen to us. Father, when we come and bring you the felt needs of our heart, when we come and exchange our wishes, Father, when we request that our will align with yours, Father, we know that this pleases you. So, Father, make us faithful to do this in our prayer life. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today who has not committed their life to Jesus Christ, Father, will you use this opportunity in this time? Help us to testify to one another. Father, open up hearts to the gospel. Open up hearts that understand the need for a mediator, the need for a savior, and the need for your grace. Father, we thank you that you have called us again out of the world into this place. Father, let us not, as we go from this place back into the world, forget what we've heard here this morning. Father, strengthen our prayer lives. 
Bring us into that sweet communion with you where we don't even think about it, Father, but our conversation just constantly in our mind centers around you, seeks your will, and seeks your face. Father, we know that only you have the power to strengthen us in this. We ask that you would bestow an extra measure of your spirit upon us uh, as we seek to increase our prayer lives. Father, make us faithful to obey you in this. We ask that not only we, but our children and our children's children might see the blessing that comes from that. Thank you for your goodness to us. We ask that you would be with us now as we continue our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.